Welcome to episode two of Crow Triple Seven Radio. Today, my guest is Greg Carlwood from Higher Side Chats, also known as THC. Um, For those of you that have followed, you may remember that I had been doing interviews, but at the point that I went on THC with Mr. Carlwood, um, I began to get a lot of requests for interviews, and the recognition for lunar wave work jumped way up. So I thought it would be interesting to have him on. And though we will be kind of occupying different spaces in the podcast area, um, folks are familiar with who he interviews. Uh, He's probably one of the best interviewers I've ever had, and that makes a big difference to have a good interviewer. Um, I will be tending towards people who are out there doing the work. Um, I'm interested mostly in people who are doing things to challenge the system in one way or another. Um, And having said that, I think one of the next guests I'm going to have pretty soon is Randy in Houston, who's caught the lunar wave twice. Uh, You folks may remember that I did a short Skype video here that's posted on the YouTube channel. Uh, So many people really enjoyed Randy, so I figured, what the heck, man, let's get him on for a couple hours um, and talk about what it is we're doing. Uh, He's just... uh, uh, I, he's a very interesting individual, and uh, well, anyhow, let's jump back over to Mr. Carlwood. That's what this show is about. We cover so much in this show, and so uh, what I'll do is I'll cue it up here. Uh, I'm going to run the first hour for YouTube, and then the uh, second hour will be on my uh, website. So let's take it from here, man. Let's get going. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. Uh, this is episode two, and today we have Greg Carlwood. Uh, I know a lot of you follow him, and a lot of you know him. And truth be told, um, I think my interview career really kind of took off after my first episode with THC and Greg Carlwood. But out of the gate here, let me give a shout out to some supporters. I'd like to, to yell out loud to Zoe. Hey, Zoe, I hope you're okay, and thanks so much for everything. And also to Chris at beambarns.com. Um, This is kind of a cool site. I went down there and checked it out. Um, As you know, I'm living in a cold area, so I'm thinking about trying to put an observatory together for my scope so that when it gets so cold, I can shoot. And at beambarms.com, he has all kinds of prefab barns. Uh, He can actually make them. The blueprints are there, for example. They're timber frame barns. I think some are prefab. You can design your own thing. Very cool. So go check out Chris at beambarns.com. If you hit my site, you'll see his sticker there. It's B-E-A-M-B-A-R-N-S.com. And if you do talk to Chris, tell him Crow sent you. Anyhow, let's get on with the show here. Welcome, Mr. Carlwood. Hey, hey. Honor and a pleasure, my man. <laughs> I'm kind of jealous of you, man. I'm sitting out here in the cold and you're back in my hometown. How are right. things in San Diego? Oh, sunny as ever, my friend. <laughs> I love it. I wish. I wish. <laughs> I have not even had my scope out once here. And now that it's finally warming up, it's raining again. So there mm. it is. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm thinking about moving to Colorado fairly soon. Of course, uh, the marijuana laws have a little bit of some something to do with that but i also just love denver but yeah i'm feeling the same way like once i move like right now the cold doesn't seem to be such a bad thing but once i'm in it i'm gonna be like god damn it i wish i would have been back in san diego what did i do this for (laughs) you know you will man it's a mile high city but uh the pot thing i'll tell you that's a funny funny thing man didn't wouldn't you have expected that california would have led the way on that You'd have thought you really would have. But I mean, that's the cliche. Every other state who thinks about California, it's this uh, this stoner surfer culture. But I mean, here in San Diego, they've done a lot to try to push it back as much as they could. They had it out there. There were as many pot shops around town as there were bars or tattoo shops when I first moved here. Now there's none, but they do home delivery, which is really just as good. But <laughs> <laughs> Actually better, right? No, but I right. remember um, it was weird because growing up in the 80s, back in the days when I still used to party, um, I had to retire in the 80s. When I got out of the Marine Corps, that stuff was like rocket fuel, man. If I touch mm-hmm. it, I stare at the bottom of my foot for three hours. So, um, but no, when, when I got back there, they were everywhere. And then I, you could see the legislation. Oh, it can't be close to a school. Oh, it can't be close to a street, you know, and they, they just kept going down, pushing it out. Um, you know, if people have skin, they can't walk in here, but that's funny, the home delivery thing. But (laughs) anyhow, man, let's jump into this. So what's new with you, man? What's new on the Carl Wood horizon? Oh, really just doing the same old thing, doing the five shows a month, trying to stay steady with that. Um, 
I still have an Armenia video to, to put out. Last year, I went to Armenia with Graham Hancock on a little research tour because a lot of people talk about Gobekli Tepe, which is there in Turkey, which borders Armenia. And a lot of people talk about things that are going on around Armenia and ancient sites there, but they don't talk about what's in Armenia. And I think that's because the infrastructure there is pretty weak. I mean, they have one major city, Yerevan, but outside of that, there's not a lot. Like we went to one place where a local Armenia guy was showing us around. He's like, hey, come here. We did a little bit of excavation here. We found some pottery, some this and that. Why don't you check it out? We went over there and there are just human bones like laying around. I picked up a jawbone that still had a tooth in it. Wow. And uh, I'm like, oh, my God, I've never touched human remains before. But here they are just right here. We can still hear people picnicking and hanging out like, you know, through the trees, not more than probably a quarter acre away. And it was kind of nuts. And I have a lot of footage there. I'm still dragging my feet on putting it up because a lot of it's shaky and and this and that. But that was a pretty amazing experience. And I'm trying to get that out because I think that if I put out a video that shows some of the sites we saw, I think it might be one of the first because I don't think there's very many groups or any that have gone around and taken that tour. No, particularly in that part of the world, I think. But I remember the first time that I even heard the words Gobekli Tepe, uh, I think it was associated with National Geographic, which is a magazine I'm not really impressed with at this point. Um, <laughs> it's really kind of gone the way of most print. But I have to ask, man, you were there, you were firsthand looking at it. Does it feel to you firsthand as ancient as you're being told it is? Well, I didn't get to go to Gobekli Tepe itself because that is in Turkey and the uh. there's not good relations between Turkey and Armenia. But some of the sites I did see, yeah, they definitely had an air of ancientness to them. Um, we went to this one particular kind of temple that had a it had an altar area and then below it, it had you could open up this old gate and there was like a little pit down there. And apparently it was for sacrifice. You know, you throw a sacrifice down there, you put the cage on top of it and you burn it. I don't know if we're talking people. I don't know if we're talking animals, but I got down in there. I was like, you know, what the hell? I'm only here once. Everybody's staring and I'm going to get down in it. <laughs> and uh, me and this one other dude, we got in it and took some pictures and uh, it had a definite creepy air about it. But one thing I would say about Gobekli Tepe is, I'm suspicious of the fact that if you look at Gobekli Tepe now, you can find pictures online, but they're doing this quote unquote like restoration. There you go. And there are uh, like two by fours, like little <laughs> two, by, two by fours um, erected around it and holding up this ancient stone. It's, it's ridiculous. And I would say they're ruining it. Uh, Graham showed me some pictures when we were on the tour and I was like, wow, this is uh, it's almost like a cover up. It's almost like this was discovered. So the Turkish government came in and said, oh, we're going to restore it. And really what you did is hide a lot of what made it special and what the researchers want to see. So I have my suspicions that, you know, also not to get so much into Armenia, but Mount Ararat is one of their biggest monuments. It's this big mountain. They love it there. It has a lot of spiritual significance to them. The legend is that's where the where Noah's Ark landed. Of course, I think that is a, a rebranding of a much older, older story. But the point is it's important to them. And when they redrew the Turkish border after the Soviet Union left, they put Mount Ararat in Turkey. So here's two things that are uh, really of significant value now in the Turkish border when, when it was redrawn. So I have my suspicions that uh, the Western world was in communication. This is all speculative, but talking to the Turkish government said, hey, if you can keep these things under wraps, if you can keep uh, the uh, fringe explorers from checking this stuff out, we'll put it within your borders. And I feel like they, they kind of work to contain what's there in the same way that Egypt works to really keep a lid on the Giza Plateau. Well, you know, that's the whole reason I brought this up. Speaking of Egypt, you know, from what I understand, you, you don't even take pictures in their museum anymore. It's gotten that bad. But to get back to where you were, um, the reason I was going down that road with you is so many of the kind of 
I guess we'll call them fringe or alternative researchers, are beginning to question the versions of antiquity and history we've been handed, um, which is why I kind of asked to see if you had seen some of these things firsthand. It's one thing to feel something's ancient, like I'm in New England, so there's houses here with plaques on them saying it was built in 16-something. By okay. California standards, that's pretty old. But right. it's a whole thing altogether to claim something is you know, 10, 15, 20,000 BC. Um, it's a funny thing, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, what's it called? Stonehenge. The people who have been researching Stonehenge are making a pretty convincing case that that place is just not as old as you've been told it is. And that's basically why I was asking you if you really felt like there was antiquity there. Yeah. I mean, it definitely felt old. And, uh, I also got to take a trip through Europe, which of course for an American is, uh, everything there is old, even, Right. Even just your typical pubs. I mean, my friend uh, Gordon White, I've had him on the show a few times. He's a practicing chaos magician, really smart guy. He took me to a pub that Crowley used to hang out in called The Plow. And I was like, wow, this is just so cool. But he also took me to uh, the Avebury Stone Circles, which we, we I wanted to go to Stonehenge. And he's like, look, don't go to Stonehenge. That's where all the tourists go. You're going to be stuck there with like four buses of Asian people taking pictures and you can't get close <laughs> to it. So why don't we go to something a little more off the radar, the Avery Stone Circle? And that was great because we did get to spend some time there basically alone, which is, I think, the only time you can really feel or maybe I'm just dense, but that's the only time I can really feel things that are old. Like it just it feels differently. Maybe I don't get distracted with all the people, but uh, the Avery Stone Circles uh, or at least this one, is where the famous comedian Bill Hicks, he was on Mushrooms and had one of his UFO experiences there. <laughs> so for me, that was pretty awesome. That, there was a little personal touch there that I loved. But uh, I also interviewed a guy, Christopher Knight, who has done some work on what he calls the megalithic yard. And it's the system of measurement. It basically takes Instead of 300, 360 degrees for a circle, it's 366 uh, because if you were to look at the stars, apparently they rotate. It's like one full rotation or on a, da on a daily basis, they'll switch uh, one degree and it turns out to be 366. It's over my head because I'm not an architect or an engineer, but this precise measurement system is encoded into these stone circles and it's also found at the great pyramids so christopher knight basically connected these two things and said look there's mathematical evidence that whoever built the pyramids at least knew about these stone circles or used the same measurement system and probably came here to learn the mathematics to do it and i mean that's pretty mind-blowing because no one ever thinks about uh, the ancient egyptians or the builders of the pyramid going to England or having anything to do with that part of the world. But unless he doesn't think they could have arrived at it completely independently, but I don't know. That's an interesting thread too. Yeah. I mean, you, you and I actually talked about this once we were talking about, you know, if, if a year is 365 days, why the hell is a circle only 360? Yeah. And, and that was just kind of an offhand example. But the, the truth is, is that measurements and basis for everything else we do are almost always generally correlatable to nature. And these things are not. Um, so I think there's a there there, but you know, these ancient things we're talking about, it is so damn frustrating because really the it's like you were pointing out, they put all this crap in Turkey and then they they lock down, you know, how much access people have. This has been going on in Egypt. Um, there's a lot of people questioning even Egypt and the, you know, the stories behind that. And it's pretty clear to me anyhow, when you look at like Egypt is a good example. When you look at certain kind of art that's on the wall and carvings in the wall. Some of them look kind of hastily scrawled in and other ones look like they were done with a laser beam. Um, mm. It just doesn't match up. And the funny thing is the ones that look like laser beams are older than the ones that look like they were scrawled. Yeah. Um, so you're all, what's going on here? But this, all this that you've been talking about was the same trip that you did Paris in, right? Uh, yeah, there were two trips pretty close to each other, but right. I did go to Paris on the European tour trip. 
Um, what are your thoughts, you know, now that you've had all this hindsight, you know, for, for those listening, uh, Greg and I were going to do a show, I, I think it was Friday the 13th, if I remember correctly, or maybe mm. I have it backwards. And for some reason, we put it off a day. And having done that, the what I consider a hoax, the Paris attacks happened the day that we were going to do it. So we ended up talking about it the following day. But with all the hindsight, um, you know, that, that was big in the in the conspiracy world for a while. What, what are your thoughts on that now looking back? Well, when I was there, there wasn't uh, much effect, but, you know, you do have people or guards standing around with machine guns, which is kind of unusual. We don't see that much in the States. We do talk about the police state and obviously there is increased aggression from police and who cares if you're shot by a handgun or a machine gun if you're dead. But it is a little creepy to see people standing around with machine guns. I didn't really expect that because typically, of course, we hear that that's kind of an American problem, the whole gun thing. But here our populace is armed, which is a bit of an equalizer. But there you're just like, you know, I have to trust that this guy isn't going to go off the handle. I have to just trust <laughs> that, you know, the government here has trained this guy, given him a weapon and that that's OK. Like, I don't know this guy and I don't really feel comfortable around guns at all. I mean, that's just me. That's how I grew up. But. Uh, it was a little odd in that regard, but yeah, kind of crazy. It's a it's a funny thing. You know, I, I was in Okinawa for quite some time when I was in the Marine Corps, and you see all the police there have holsters, but there's no gun in the holster. And what happens is, or at least back in the, the 80s when I was there, um, what happens is if there's an event, they, you know, go back and get issued a weapon. Um, but on Okinawa, I think the only murder that had happened in – I don't know, 10 or 20 years, they were telling us, was done by a Marine. So um, different place altogether. But it's a strange thing when you get to a place and people are armed in that way. And actually, to be honest with you, when I did my trip across, some of the checkpoints uh, that are supposed to be like, do you have oranges or, or bananas in the car? Some of those dudes look paramilitary. And you're just thinking, really? They're checking us for bananas and oranges, and this guy's carrying a, you know an M16? But anyhow, let's pull yeah. this let's pull this back around to you a little bit. Um, at this point, do you have any idea how many interviews you've done? Uh, I would say probably two hundred, maybe more. So, so since the onset of THC, you think you're at around two hundred? Yeah, I would say so. Um, do you have favorite topics or favorite people that you've covered within that? I mean, do you have certain ones that you do where you're just like, yeah, I get to do this again? <laughs> well, I have to say you're one of my favorites, but uh, I I guess. I've gotten more into the kind of down to earth concrete conspiracies because doing this for so long and getting into the really out there fringe stuff is really fun and great. But when I'm talking to like your average person, they have a really hard time jumping right into the deep end of the pool. So I've gotten more into things like the Titanic conspiracy, which I think is directly related to the Federal Reserve, and people don't realize that, but that's something that I can pretty much talk to the man on the street and get him to think differently about it, because it was so long ago. If you hit him with 9-11, a lot of times there's so much emotional trauma there still, or it's just, you know, the whole quote of, uh, it's too soon. You know, they won't look at it objectively, but the Titanic, I mean, who's emotional about the sinking of the Titanic? So you, you can kind of reason a little bit better about it, but uh, J.P. Morgan bought the shipping line that the t Titanic was a part of not more than 10 years before it happened. He was supposed to be on the Titanic and got off at the last minute. So did his buddy, the heir of the, I think, Hershey uh, dynasty. And then a lot of the opponents of the Federal Reserve, other elite class, were on that ship. And there's a lot of crazy stuff about the actual sinking, but... It happened in 1912, and the Federal Reserve was put in place in 1913 right. on, over Christmas break. So you have this situation where a rich industrialist banker who wants the Federal Reserve to get put in place uh, has this boat that's bringing over a lot of aristocrats from Europe, and a lot of the people who don't want the Federal Reserve are on it. And then you just get rid of it, and then not even a full year later or a little bit more than 18 months later, I suppose— is when you put it in place. And we're still a victim to that today. So when people aren't sure if the Federal Reserve is bad, I say, well, look at this. This is how it got here. And they put it, place, they put it in place on 
uh, December 23rd, right before Christmas. I mean, most of Congress wasn't even there. Most of the government was home for break. So this is when they do these things, when no one's looking. Now we have the Trans-Pacific Partnership, another nefarious plan from the globalists. And of course, for a long time, everybody's like, well, what does it say? We can't even read it because it was done behind closed doors. So when they want something done, they do it under the radar or they create a false flag to distract people while they're putting these things through. But I think the Federal Reserve Titanic links are pretty strong. And that was the first time this was done. And I guess I've gotten more into those kinds of things because for me, when I'm talking to your average Joe, those are the things that for them seem to be more of revelations. Another one is the whole alcohol conspiracy. For the longest time, I was like, what was prohibition about? Like, was it really just some conservative religious housewives who, who clocked enough to get people to say, okay, well, get rid of alcohol, just shut up. Uh, that's kind of what I thought the, the whole thing was about because it didn't make sense. But when you find out that alcohol was used as a fuel and a lot of the farmers ran tractors on alcohol and they had their own stills. And think about today, if we all had our own little uh, alcohol compost pile type devices that was actually powering our vehicles, because all these, it's a fallacy that these vehicles, I mean, now they're kind of built differently, but the Model T, the original cars ran on alcohol that you could make yourself. And this was the problem. So uh, Rockefeller and his cohorts decided to get rid of alcohol and they said it was for consumption. So then 10 years later, when they repeal prohibition, everybody's only concerned about drinking it. They totally forget about the fuel component to it. And so now we're on standard oil, which is where Rockefeller made all their money. We're on that now still today. So all these things that happen, this legislation that passes that you kind of think of as odd or anomalous, Behind it, there's always rich industrialists who have an agenda. And I think when you hit people with the alcohol conspiracy and the Titanic Federal Reserve connections, that's when their wheels get turning. And then maybe, maybe later you can hit them with something like the lunar wave. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you should say that. But in my mind, there's very few things that we see go on that isn't related directly to banking and big money. And as yeah. we all know, we've got a central banking system. And as we all know, supposedly the founding of this country was partially about getting away from that. And as we all know, it seems like at some point our government was blackmailed by the people who had cash and had them in debt. But the Titanic, you know, you bring that up, it's a funny, funny thing. Um, as I look back at it now, it almost feels like the 9-11 of its day with the yes. exact same people pulling the strings with the exact same overtones. But I watched a guy, God, it's been a long time. I think he was British, um, trying to demonstrate that there was a sister ship. I think it was called the Olympia. Is that right? Or yeah, it, that's true. It was the Olympia. Um, and he had demonstrated that when the supposed submersible went down and saw the Titanic, Titanic, they had enough pictures to count the windows. The only differences between the Olympia and the Titanic, which were sister ships, was apparently the number of portholes. And he demonstrated, I guess, to his satisfaction that the ship that was on the bottom was actually not the Titanic. It was the right. Olympia. Um, and there was a whole thing going on. But the more I was looking at this and then fast forwarded up to the movie, The Titanic, and, you know, you just walk away feeling like you're trying to be programmed into believing certain things when a big movie like that comes out. Actually, one of the biggest movies of all time now. Um, but, I mean, do you get the sense of it? Is Was that the 9-11 of their day? Oh, I definitely think so. And you're right. The, the, there was a switch made or supposed switch made. Uh, the reason was is the Olympia was damaged already right. and it was too expensive to fix. And of course, these guys are all about profit and loss. So if you can take a liability and kind of use it to your advantage, because obviously the Federal Reserve is a lot more profitable than some ship, uh, you can basically sink your lo your losing asset and at the same time put in place a central bank that you can milk and your kids can milk and your grandkids can milk for the rest of your days. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about just how intricately uh, money is tied to all the things that we see. Um, but I mean, that kind of is, is a good door to open to go on my next my next question to you, which is, you know, you've interviewed so many people um, so many people that I'll probably never, ever meet or talk to. 
um, in my lifetime. Now that you're up to 200, I mean, you've covered uh -huh. the gamut from kind of people like me, who's just a dude in his backyard, to people who are writing books and you know showing up on TV. And I know we've had some conversations. I mean, at one time we talked about when Hoagland had uh, kind of made a run at me in that article in uh, whatever it was. I think it was Newsweek. But do you feel like the mainstream community uh, of conspiracy people are avoiding the real cutting edge of information and actually kind of diluting or adding nothing and detracting from the real storyline? Do you ever get the sense of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a big part of why – I started the show. I think things have changed a little bit now, but five years ago, which is kind of when I started it, there really wasn't conspiracy podcasts and there really was just a couple of things out there. I mean, Red Ice at the time was a show I really liked. I don't really like the direction they're going anymore. Uh, but then you only had Alex Jones and Coast to Coast. And I felt like Coast to Coast was all this stuff about paranormal and aliens, but they never really get into conspiracy. And then Alex Jones is this guy who makes conspiracy look bad. You know, he just <laughs> screams and yells and you look at the guy and you're like, this guy's irrational and he's completely insane. And I think in both cases, it's just limited hangout. You have Alex Jones. He's the tip of the conspiracy iceberg as far as media is concerned. And there's a re reason for that. He's allowed to be. So That's that way, right. when when The View decides that they're going to be all crazy and have a conspiracy guy on, he's the only one they get. And then they get him on. He was also what he had that big uh, Pierce Morgan interview, too. He goes on these more conventional shows where they get to say, see, we listen to all voices. And then he goes nuts and nobody hears anything he says. They just say, oh, here's that irrational conspiracy guy. And he subliminally to everybody else, subconsciously, he represents all of conspiracy. He represents the type of person who be believes in these things. And of course, he acts crazy. He can't just go on and have a rational conversation about things like I had mentioned the Titanic and the alcohol conspiracy. You can talk in a normal tone and discuss these things, but he refuses to. He's got the vein popping out of his neck, you know, steam coming off his forehead. <laughs> like that is a show and there's a reason for it. And I think in Coast to Coast case, it's just the same kind of thing. They never get past the 101 level. He'll have guests that he's had on five times. And the first question will be like, so Dr. Stephen Greer, what do you think about aliens? It's like, well, you know what he's thought about aliens. You've interviewed him for <laughs> hours already. Let's start at the deep end of the pool. Let's jump ahead. And uh, it's always this uh, introductory type stuff. And of course, they're limited by their formats. They have commercial breaks that are super lengthy. So you get you have a guest who talks for 10 minutes, then you have 10 minutes of commercial, then you have the next two minutes just getting back to where you were. And before you know it, before they can get deep into anything, it's another commercial. So I think that also helps. And that's kind of ironic too. I mean, what a 180. You have this show that's supposed to be exposing, you know, things the government or the elite don't want us to know being sponsored by the companies that the elite <laughs> want to sell and make money off of. So clearly they're only telling you just enough. No, I mean, there's no doubt. It, it never ceases to amaze me. And I, I think that's a good synopsis. Um, these people are there for a reason. And if you're going to be on the millions of people airwaves, you're going to play by the millions of people airwaves rules, which yep. means you're never going to say a damn thing that matters. It's so funny because so many people who follow me still kind of mention Alex Jones and think he was the guy that snuck into Bohemian Grove and did all these things. And they don't really understand that he's a set piece. Um, and that he serves a purpose, which you so succinctly just described. Mm -hmm. he, he's the call-in guy for the mainstream shows that makes us all look insane because when you watch that guy, you think he probably should have had six less cups of coffee that day, mm -hmm. um, and that's about all you get from him. But uh, anyhow, let's move on. Let's move to uh, a little bit more of where you have come, you know, you've talked to so many people now and I always wonder, you know, what kind of an effect that has on you. Um, in my experience, you start to talk to the people who seem like they've really kind of become very aware people. Um, but these are the individuals who seem so jaded and so unwilling to deal with people who don't get it. And, um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, where do you stand on the most basic thing like aliens as an example? Uh, I obviously I used to love aliens and uh, now I think 
that I take more of the Jacques Vallée attitude of, I think there's a connection between what people consider aliens and what magicians and occultists consider spirits. And I think that also another interesting note is that if you look at the ancient fairy lore, I know this is kind of weird for someone who might not be into cryptozoology who has ever looked into these kind of things, but you know, way before you had aliens, you had fairies. And in Ireland and the UK, all the stories there are have a lot of parallels to the stories of aliens, a lot of medical experiments, a lot of uh, stealing of kids, a lot of genetic type stuff. And it makes you think if if this uh, phenomenon isn't way older than we think it is and that the alien motif is just our cultural overlay our modern cultural overlay for the same phenomenon. And I think that uh, that's kind of where I am with aliens. I think it's a lot older. I'm not even sure that they're aliens from Zeta Reticuli, like they say, because that's the thing. Why do we think that they're aliens from outer space? Because they tell us. We have people who are saying they have these experiments, which are sometimes super painful, super traumatic, and then... uh, Obviously not with the person's best interest in heart. They're treating them like, uh, you know, rats in a lab. And then we ask them where they're from and they say, oh, we're from outer space. And we just take them at their word. What if they're what if they're from here? You know, what if we share the planet with some kind of other intelligence, multidimensional, perhaps, uh, that has been with humanity ever since? And another little thing about the fairy lore, it's like if you were going to carry out some type of genetic program or experiments, or if you wanted to monitor certain segments of a population, where would you put them but on an island, which is what the UK and Ireland are. You know, you're not hearing these stories from the middle of Russia or the middle of Asia, like these huge continents. You're hearing them from these small islands. Of course, now it's different because people have the ability to move a lot more than they they had 500 years ago. But I think something is going on there, and I'm not sure that it's as simple as aliens from outer space. Yeah, you know, it's it's a funny, funny thing. Um, I have always kind of thought it's so difficult to believe that human beings are the only game in town. Um, but having come all this way and filmed so many strange things and then reassessed what I filmed and come up with the conclusion that there is nothing so amazing about anything that I have filmed that I can't call it probably terrestrial technology. Um, and then to take that a step further, you were talking about Zeta Reticuli and the Greys. Um, you can almost look at the exact movie from Hollywood that put the gray images in our head, and then you can walk through to the Spielberg movies that echoed it, um, and you kind of see that there was a definition in media and Hollywood that was put forward to kind of bolster the idea of what aliens should be, which brings you back to what you were saying. Uh, maybe it's something else altogether, or who knows? It's just um, it's so hard to ever get close to anything that matters when we've got so much pollution from Hollywood and the mainstream sources. But um, yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. let's keep pushing and I'll hit the divisive one next. Um, Let's talk a minute about flat earth. And I know that you were getting pummeled um, at some point where people were hitting you saying, why don't you talk about this all the time? And as you know, I've had people like Mark Sargent out there saying my name in every single interview he's in. Uh, when I don't really support or appreciate too much of what he's done at all, um, I get constantly associated with Flat Earth because of just a couple people. And uh, while I feel there's some real interesting work being done challenging the description of our planet, I wanted to ask you, um, where are you with Flat Earth? What do you think about it? Do you think there's any value in the movement itself? Well, I think there's value. I definitely think that questioning everything is good, and that is the furthest extreme of questioning everything, the actual composition of the planet itself. So I don't mind it. Like, if I had to hang out with a guy, I'd rather hang out with a guy who's questioned everything to the point that the Earth is flat rather than someone who's never even considered that terrorists didn't hijack planes and destroy the Twin Towers. You know, like, I'd rather be on the side of the furthest out conspiracy theory than a guy who just thinks that there's nothing to see here across the board. But I definitely don't go that far. I mean, it's it's interesting because every time I go out to 
sunset cliffs and ocean beach and look out at the ocean, I always think, you know, I see zero curvature here. And when I took these flights to Armenia and to uh, also the flight to Europe, it went from from here to Iceland, Iceland to Russia, and then Russia to Amsterdam. Of course, I started in Amsterdam. And uh, going up that far north was really interesting. On the trip out, the sun never set, which was kind of crazy. It was an overnight flight, but the the sun was always at least at like a sunset level. I could always see it. And then it started just to rise again. And I can't even wrap my head completely around some of this stuff. Like it's, it's really hard to, for me to sit down and listen to three hours of flat earth arguments. And I say, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> and then I hear conventional people describing why the flat earthers are wrong and that this is how it really works. And I'm like, yeah, that could be too. It's just, it's tough, man. I can't, I just, I keep the door open to all these things. I definitely think there's some strange stuff like Neil deGrasse Tyson talks like he knows everything and everything is just settled science. And he talks about the earth being pear shaped <laughs> yet. The photos of the earth are a perfect round blue marble. And then when asked about it, he says, Oh, well, it's such a small uh, degree of change that you wouldn't notice it in a photograph. I'm like, you know, dude, I, I that I don't buy. I think, I think either the, the pictures are fake what you're saying doesn't make sense. It's tough, dude. But I, as far as the flat earth, I wouldn't commit to it because I just, that's another problem I think that conspiracy has is that people hear something once and then all of a sudden they're experts on it. Right. And I think the flat earth is something that a lot of people have decided that after watching a two hour video by Eric DeBay, they've now uncovered the biggest secret and they just can't wait to share it. But yet, they really don't know much about it. They're, they don't really have uh, the facts down. They just saw a movie. Yep, yep. I, I think there's so many people within that community doing important things. Um, I've said endlessly in interviews uh, that in my view, this world is misdescribed, as is the sun, moon, and space, our solar system to boot. Um, the problem is, is with the group, you know, they've been around for 100 or 200 years, whatever it's been, and I don't join groups because you can see the divisiveness that's put into it. But um, I noticed that there are individuals who are contributing quite a bit. And the real problem here is that I do wholeheartedly believe that where we live is misdescribed, but I also think it's not going to be redescribed overnight. Um, right. And I think that becomes part of the problem because so many people who like when they listen to me speak, they want these solid answers that I can't give them. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit like saying, well, there's a door over there, but I, I can't walk through it for you, mm -hmm. you know, like that. But anyhow, I mean, that, that leads perfectly uh, into the next little thing I have listed for us here. I mean, do you feel like our world is properly described or do you feel it's improperly described? And if it, you think it's improperly described, do you think that was by intention? Yeah, I'm, well, I do think it was it's improperly described. I just don't know to what degree. And uh, I think it's all on purpose. Yeah, I don't think that they accidentally have steered us wrong about the Earth. I think the flat earth goes too far, but one I do really like is the idea of the hollow earth. And that gets back to the uh, idea of fairies and aliens. Like if they exist, where do they exist? Where do they come from? Uh, I think the idea of the hollow earth is viable. I think if you look at what NASA said uh, kind of cryptically, they've made mention that several other bodies in the solar system, they're calling them hollow. They're, they're saying that the moon rings like a bell. Well, there must be some big hollow cavity inside, if that's what they're saying. Of course, I know that we kind of think the moon might be something else entirely, but at least that's something to go on. And they say the same about uh, Phobos, which is a, a satellite of, of Mars, I believe. And so you're hearing these things that not all the bodies in the solar system are exactly as we've been told, as just... Uh, round balls that are increasingly dense towards the core, we're finding that there are some things out there that might have huge cavities inside. And I think the Earth might be one of those things. If you look at the polar regions, they are some of the most well-guarded regions, militarily guarded regions on the planet. I've read before that 
the reason the North Pole is such a no-fly zone and no satellites go over it is because they say that uh, it's a threat to global security because the vantage point is so important. But that just doesn't make sense either because someone's got the place quarantined. What about their advantage? And uh, well, so the, I think they had it. Qu- they had it quarantined long before anyone was going to be flying over it. But sorry for stepping on you. Go ahead. No, you're right. Exactly. And there's a reason for that. And I yeah. think the the Nazis, they very much believed that there was uh, places they could reach by getting to Antarctica and then going inside somewhere. And I think they had uh, obviously um, a lot of discipline and they obviously knew how to get things done. So did the Nazis have uh, this super regimented, super serious and important philosophy to them, but then they were just way out to lunch on this hollow earth thing? I don't know. Maybe, but I don't think the earth is properly described. I think it might be hollow. That's about as far as I would go. Yeah, and and I think that I I do agree with you on certain points there. Uh, One is that any place that is so segregated, and I think, what is it, 47 nations guarding the border of Antarctica, something like that, um, what are they hiding? I mean, right. uh, yeah, well, not only that, there's flight paths that would benefit, be shorter, actually shorter if they could fly over that landmass um, with the models that were handed. But it's it's clearly nonsense. And, you know, then you can look at the names of things. Everything's named after a king or, or a queen or, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. But I mean, this kind of brings us to if if we can agree, and I think we both do agree that this world is misdescribed. Um, what about the solar system? And for my part, if NASA has intentionally hidden the shape of our world, what our world is, where we are, um, I can't accept information from them. But that's just me. Where do you stand on the solar system? I mean, do you accept the model that is primarily given us through space agencies and then bolstered by Hollywood, you know, with the Star Trek in the 60s and, you know, all the way on up? Right. Yeah. I think that the the Hollywood angle is really important. So much of what we know, like you mentioned the alien motif earlier, so much of what we get in our heads is from Hollywood and space is no different. I'd say our ideas, our mental pictures of space are way more solidified by Hollywood than they are NASA even because all NASA's images you can't even make out what you're seeing. Usually it's usually like infrared mapping and stuff. And it just it doesn't even. I can't make any sense of it. I'm not an expert, but most of my ideas from space, yeah, they definitely come from the Hollywood movies. And we have to remember, like, all those ideas are just films. Like, you can't base your reality off of them, even if they're supposed to be telling you that that's what reality is. I think there's something up there for sure. I mean, talk about the, uh, you know, the speed in which our planets are supposed to be rotating and orbiting. And then you have these stars billions and trillions of light years away that are actually supposed to be uh, like in the exact same position for generations. Like, I don't know. It seems a little fishy that these things wouldn't get out of alignment with all the crazy motion that we're told is going on. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, everything talk about talk about the ultimate way to keep a, a world off balance. Everything is spinning. I mean, yeah. even your solar system is spinning within a galaxy in their <laughs> model. Even the galaxy is spinning within a larger group. You know, I mean, there is nothing that is not spinning. And if you take that back to our world, uh, you and I are about to be upside down in about 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a very strange thing. And this has always been a problem. Uh, I made the mistake in an interview of being a little bit rude to the Electric Universe people um, because I was just tired of hearing the same thing over and over and over. And so I I've been very careful to apologize to the Electric Universe folks, though I do not agree with them. Um, this is my problem. I mean, if we come to a point where we say we can't accept information from NASA because they lie for a living, we doubt the description of the place we live. So how can we accept the place, you know, any other description of any place? And, you know, there's the Electric Universe, which in my view is basically just taking the NASA model and electrifying it. Um, and uh-huh. I, I know you must have dealt with it by now. So, I mean, what about Electric Universe? Right. I mean, if you're going to doubt the typical composition of space and the planets and the solar system, then the Electric Universe model isn't going to be for you because it is built on that template. And it does just add the component of electricity. But 
there are some things that are interesting about it. Like uh, if you get into the real uh, elite conspiracies about what they believe, what the uh, what the secret societies actually worship, you'll find a ton of Saturn references. You'll ton of, find a ton of Saturn worship. And one thing that's an interesting component to the electric universe is that they basically consider space to be, instead of an empty void, it's more of a blanket of electricity, of maybe static electricity, some type. And the instead of the sun being a gigantic nuclear furnace, it's actually more of an electrical type thing. And they consider certain bodies that are stars to have uh, to be able to discharge their electric fields. And the theory goes that at some point in history, Saturn was actually a uh, a brown dwarf star that was our our real sun. And at some point it discharged with our current sun and went off out into the distance. And it's very strange because uh, I can't really fathom that happening. The way everything in space seems so static, a, a change that radical seems a little hard to compute. But why are the elite worshiping Saturn? Why are these these ancient um, bloodlines of secret societies that seem to go back very far? They all have this uh, Saturn worship, and it's got to be for some reason. But I find the Electric Universe pretty compelling, pretty interesting, mainly for that Saturn connection. Uh, and I think we've been kind of lied to about a secret area of physics that's been quarantined from people that I think contains uh, electricity, gravity, magnetism, and even uh, waves. Like, uh, I think it can be translated into music also. I think there's a musical component. Maybe that's how things like uh, the pyramids and Coral Castle were built, by tuning a wavelength to some type of auditory tone that also has some kind of effect on gravity. Um, weird stuff, but if you look into the Hutchinson effect, he's doing a lot of experiments that are on camera that are in that realm right now. Yeah, at the, at the base of things, you know, initially, years ago, uh, when I first initially saw the Electric Universe model, I was intrigued a bit and I was looking. Um, but, I mean, we can agree, I think, that to go down the electric universe path, you have to accept the NASA solar system model. Um, and, I, I mean, some people may say it's not just NASA. It's Galileo and all these other people. So, yeah, you have to accept the textbook kind of solar system space model that we've been handed to go down this road, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it, it's built on it. It's important. It's definitely tied in there. Like, you can't really separate the two. But where I think they're right is the uh, component of electricity having something to do with gravity. Like maybe gravity isn't a force itself. It's just a byproduct of electrical force. I think that's an interesting thing, an interesting area they get into. And also because it ties into UFOs. What are UFOs? But, uh, you know, anti-gravity craft, electrogravitic craft also has to do with rotation uh, a lot of these crafts, you'll find there's an out, outer edge that's rotating around a center body and obviously all over my head. But it also ties into Tesla and free energy. And the argument there is they can't tell us about UFOs. They can't tell us about the electric universe. They must keep all this stuff secret because it gets us to a point where we would we would inevitably reach free energy because that's these are all the things that lead us there, all the breadcrumbs that are quarantined in the conspiracy world are the things that lead us to free energy. And we just talked about, uh, you know, the alcohol conspiracy. And I think just as that was to keep us away from energy independence, so is all this in another weird way. Yeah. You know, when I, as, as you were talking and I was thinking about it, I know that you interviewed Dollard. Um, and for my money, this is a good example. Someone like Dollard comes in and says some very compelling things, but he challenges it all the way to the foundation. Yeah. He takes the old foundation, hits it with a sledgehammer, cracks it to smithereens, pushes it out of the way, and then builds kind of more of a con common sense, um, logical progression, pointing out along the way where he can clearly see um, shenanigans was played. Yeah. Um, and so for my money, People like that are always going to have a higher spot in my mind as a valuable source of information because I just can't get past um, 
accepting things from NASA. And it blows my mind that in this day and age, the scientific community still will not take the time to demonstrate that the Apollo stuff we were handed was wholesale fraud. I mean, mm -hmm. you can use parallax, you can use any number of things to just wholesale show it was made up out of whole cloth, you know, and a good chance Mr. Kubrick had a hand in it. You know, I guess we can't prove that uh, using hindsight, but we can in fact prove that what we were handed uh, as moon landing evidence is all fraud. So I, I just can't get past um, accepting these older models. And, you know, the lunar wave, the 2012 footage is either going to do one of two things in my view. 50 years from now, it won't have mattered and no one will ever remember that it was shot. Or some things will be discovered about the moon and people may look back and say, see, this was the first time we really had an inkling. But anyhow, I, I want to pull on one thread that we covered there, and it has to do with media and why we accept these models. Um, when we look at a place like NASA, and for those of us who have pointed out, like I took time to point out what I consider fraud with the Rosetta Philae uh, comet landing. I did a clip on it. Um, then I was covered widely in Gizmodo, Daily Mail in the UK, Time magazine or Newsweek magazine here in this country twice because I did a clip saying that the Pluto flyby was fraud. So let's jump in um, to what effect TV and movies has on uh, kind of our human psyche to accept these basic models that I feel should be challenged. Um, how big is the role of TV and movies in accepting these things that should actually probably be science-based? Yeah, I definitely think it's paramount, man. And another odd element to that is, well, I guess something I've been thinking about recently, not having to do with space, but having to do with movies, is what is the one element that is in almost every movie you see? It is a love story. The only movie I can think of that's mainstream good that doesn't have a love story is Snatch. I love that movie, but <laughs> it's a good movie. I can think of very few that don't have that. And, you know, why? Why is it like that? Is it because it's a simple story that everyone can relate to? Or is it because when you have people buying into the idea of lifelong romantic love, getting into the contract of a marriage and building a family, I think people are easier to control. Yep. Uh, if you had people like in the 60s with free love and chaos and everybody just doing whatever they wanted, you, you really can't crack down because people are guarded against authority in that type of paradigm. But, you know, go into any com any uh, comedy club in the country and you're going to hear some people making the same jokes about marriage being a prison that you're trapped in for the rest of your life. And I mean, I don't want to, you know, totally shit on that because I'm in a relationship that I'm probably going to be in for the rest of my life. I'm very happy with it. I'm comfortable with monogamy and all that good stuff. But I think there's manipulation there. You can't deny that it's easier to control people if they're in that paradigm. And is it natural? I don't know because I think that uh, our same biological mechanism that wants us to have sex also wants us to have sex with multiple partners. That's why there's so much cheating. That's why so many marriages do end in divorce. I think that there is a biological trigger there to spread your seed. I mean, that's how populations grow. But we have been trained and regimented to be like one person for the rest of your life. Granted, I'm going to do that because that's the society we're in and I'm very happy doing it. But it does seem like an against the grain way to live yet it's drilled into us from you know day one and i think movies have a lot to do with that the idea of romantic love this uh everlasting love you know marriage isn't really like that as far as i know i mean it's a it's work and it can work but i think it's an against the grain thing and i think hollywood is the number one mechanism that makes us chase that ideal and how convenient that it also makes us easier to control and I think that's kind of a 101 basis of how these things start. But yeah, everything we know about space, same thing. Uh, you can actually go on YouTube and find this really good example in archery. There's uh, this guy, I can't, wish I could remember his name. He's uh, Hungarian or something, so his name is very hard to pronounce. But he is a master archer because he went back and resurrected the way archery used to be. And we all think of archery from movies like Lord of the Rings, where you're standing in the back of the battlefield. All right, pull, 
shoot. And then you fire like these thousands of arrows that go over the battlefield and come down like rain on the other side. That is all a fabrication of Hollywood because archery used to be a lot more uh, close combat fighting. And that sounds so crazy and weird, but you got to see this guy do it because he has like uh, little courses set up and he goes around and he does archery uh, in the traditional sense. And it looks so foreign and it looks so deadly too. It's ridiculous. And you can find this guy on YouTube. And I think that is a good, simple, non-emotional, easy to grasp example because he cuts in between movies and he cuts in between like old paintings that showed archery and how different they are. And uh, it just goes to show Hollywood creates so many ideas in our mind that are not reality. And you got to constantly think about that and challenge it and try to figure out, you know, where reality really is. You know, I, I would almost say that Hollywood has shaped the significant, the lion's share of our culture. Yeah. Um, maybe why we wear blue jeans and maybe why we had a car culture the way that that started in the 50s. And I think your example of love was just spot on because <laughs> left to our own devices, we may find someone who we love, who we want to be with, but it's a construct marriage. You know, who, who mm-hmm. finally said we're going to get this third dude. And by the way, he's going to be a priest you know, um, to come a stranger. Yeah. And and then we're going to license you. And, you know, in my lifetime, um, I I don't know if you're old enough, but in my lifetime, part of that construct was we needed your blood. We got to figure out the RH factor to make sure you two are compatible. But at some point that became unimportant for some Mm. reason. Um, Mm. all these strange things, but uh, I, I mean, can we agree? Um, we have this bizarre establishment that started in the West called Hollywood that is apparently run by a certain religion um, and a, a small number of families who have probably shaped 80 to 90 percent of the Western culture, which is exported all over this world. Okay, so there is the first hour or so with uh, Greg Carlwood. The second hour will be running on Crow777radio.com uh, on my podcast website. Uh, it will be available for members. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, Randy will be coming up as one of my guests. For those of you that remember, Randy has caught the lunar wave twice in the city of Houston. Um, and we're going to be talking about what he's done and the equipment he's using. And uh, we're going to be talking about being in lunar wave season. So I hope you will all stay tuned. And I hope that you guys will jump on over to my podcast website and catch the second hour. Okay, almost forgot. In the second hour, we will be finished talking about um, the the impact of Hollywood movie and Jewishness on culture and how we view space. We'll be talking about false false news, uh, false flags typically termed uh, as false news. We'll be talking about who may be behind that and the relationship of those who are running Hollywood. Um, we're going to talk about topics that Greg may no longer address on uh, THC and the lunar wave. And the reason that covering lunar wave with Greg is interesting because he has such a kind of large following. So we'll be talking about what impact the lunar wave has had in the conspiracy community, whether it's helped change people's view of the moon, and whether or not it's being taken seriously by the majority of people that he has contact with. We'll be talking about NASA, of course, uh, whether they've lied about major missions, um, we're going to talk about whether U.S. is in free fall, whether it's getting better or worse here. We'll, we'll talk about the 10th article, and I asked Greg what he'd like me to cover in that 10th article. There's going to be much, much more. But anyhow, join me over at crow 7 radiocom for the final hour of the Greg Carl Podcast.